Good morning. <clears throat> Turn to the book of Ruth, please. Book of Ruth, right after the book of Judges. And before 1 Samuel. <clears throat> I love this book. You have a real treat in store for you this morning. It's a sweet, wonderful story. And it takes place really in the midst of darkness. Uh, when the Israelites typically were far from God. But in the midst of all that time of sin and wickedness and turmoil, this wonderful jewel of a story takes place. In case you're wondering why we're looking at it now. Uh, so let's begin Ruth chapter 1, reading in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Okay. As we said, you can see from the first verse there, it takes place during the book of Judges. That's why we're looking at it. For any visitors, we're looking at uh, character studies, we're calling it, in the Old Testament. And uh, you notice the family had left Israel and went to the land of Moab. Mo okay, Israel's here, Mediterranean's over here, Moab's down here next to the Red Sea. So they left their country and went to Moab. Not a good place to go. It might be as far as food goes, but it was an idolatrous nation. So one wonders why Elimelech took his family down there. Uh, Moabites were not generally uh, nice people. They were refused uh, fellowship. If you remember the story of uh, Balak and Balaam that Noad went through with us, uh, they were heavy into idolatry. And so God warned them against them. Nevertheless, Elimelech decided to go down there, not worrying about the idols because there was food. Uh, there's reason to believe, therefore, that this story might have taken place during the time of Gideon. You remember when we looked at uh, Gideon, remember what happened? The guys from the east came in every year at harvest time and did what? Cleaned out the land, remember? Ate everything. And so there was a famine every year uh, for uh, all that time they were coming in. So it may be that it was during that time. Uh, it's interesting that within 10 years, all the males of the family died. This may have been the judgment of God in running away from the discipline of God back in the land. Uh, most of the Israelites stayed and toughed it out, and eventually uh, the country repented. And of course, God you know, would, would uh, forgive them and, and raise up judges, and they would be out of the famine. So when uh, God brings discipline on us, Sometimes we try to get out from under it, which is not good. We're going to see a lot of that in this story. It's going to be one of the themes, by the way, taking control away from God. And I believe that's probably what Elimelech was doing. When he died, they should have gone back, whoever the eldest son was, saying, we're not supposed to be down here, but he didn't, nor did the other son. And that may well be why God uh, took them. <clears throat> so here we are now uh, after verse 5. 
Naomi is all by herself, except for her daughters-in-law, who are Moabites, uh, down in this foreign land. And you can imagine how Naomi feels now, having lost her husband and both her sons. Uh, she's had it. So she's ready to go back home. <clears throat> Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my god where you die i will die and there will i be buried the lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me when she saw that she was determined to go with her she stopped speaking to her okay um naomi it's interesting i don't know if you noticed that they got a good ways down the road together did you catch that they all left together. And uh, for some reason, after they'd gone a ways, Naomi then decides to turn to them and tell them to go back. And you wonder, uh, she had a change of heart, I guess. Maybe she thought she wanted companionship along the way, but then realized that it would be selfish. We don't know. But uh, they had begun to go to Israel with her when she stopped and turned and said, you guys go on back. You know, you have no future in Israel. So just go back to your families and your friends and your familiar surroundings and let me go on by myself it's a it's a touching story uh by the way verses 11 through 13 there in case you're wondering why naomi is such making such a big deal about not uh being able to have any sons this has to do with a law that god had uh given back in deuteronomy i'll just read it for you <clears throat> it states this if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So, uh, the first place for them to look under Israelite law, although the Israelites kind of extended God's law a little bit to expand it to nearest relatives, 
But the point is, uh, God had it so that a family name would not die out. So that if a man died childless and he was the last of the line, then he'd made this law that the brother was to marry the widow, the woman, and raise up children in the name of his dead brother. And so uh, it would have to be Ruth's other sons that would marry these two women. Well, she doesn't have other sons. And what she says here is, uh, even if I were to get married, which is extremely unlikely, and I had a son, you'd have to wait another 20 years before you could marry him. And uh, so I don't, I don't see that happening, and so you guys return. And uh, Orpah took her up on it, as you saw, and went back to Moab. With, with weeping, you can't fault Orpah. Uh, she, she had better chances in her own country of a future. It's Ruth we want to focus on, and that's the name of the book, appropriately. She's a wonderful, godly woman. And just think about now, all of the obstacles against her uh, continuing with Naomi instead of going back to her uh, friends and family in Moab. Besides the obstacle that Naomi mentioned here, I'm not going to have any sons, so the odds are you're not going to be able to have a husband. Um, there would be the lure of going back to her friends and family. As uh, Naomi said in uh, verse 15, your people, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to go back to people you know? right in your family israel she'd never been to israel another language another culture um it's interesting uh, that naomi told them both to go back to their gods did you catch that is that interesting they're, they're idolaters and uh, orpah went back to her god she probably still was what's interesting ruth is no longer an idolater we're gonna we're gonna see that she loves the lord and in fact, that's probably the main reason for her continuing because she wants to go now to the land of her God, the Lord. Um, another obstacle or, or at least enticement to draw the, the girls back was back in verse eight, the way Naomi put it. She says, go return each to her mother's house. Notice that. Go back to mom. And the, the picture there is there's nothing like a mother's tender love, you know, at a time like this. You know, the husband's died. She's a, widow, a young widow. Go back to mom and she'll be able to care for you, you know, and comfort you. Well, that's got to sound awfully enticing. But Ruth says no to that. Um, as I said, they'll be going to a foreign land, foreign people, foreign customs, language. Uh, we said also that in, in Israel, Moabites were forbidden full fellowship among the congregation because of what they did when the Israelites came through. So she would be a, a strange stranger in a strange land there. And therefore, it would be even more difficult for her to, to get married because she'd be looked upon as an alien, a foreigner. Finally, uh, she's committing herself to a life of poverty. Particularly in these, in these days, uh, the men were the breadwinners and the men and the family are all gone. And so uh, if she goes to Israel, she's never going to uh, be comfortable financially. So the point is, she saw all of that and she said, no, I'm going to go with you. And <clears throat> it's interesting that God records uh, this conversation in such detail. You know, God, this is a pretty good sized book, isn't it? Nevertheless, when you think about all the stuff God could have put in here, he really restricts himself to what he thinks is important. 
And obviously, this, this discussion, or in particular, Ruth's words, are very important to the Lord. And that's why he put them there. And I believe it, it really found a place in God's heart, Ruth's attitude. Because if you notice, when Ruth finished her appeal to Naomi, say, don't send me back. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge, and so on. She took an oath. She swore by the Lord. She said, I'm going to go with you. And if, if I break any part of this oath, may, may the Lord do so to me and more. I mean, that's a strong statement. By the way, notice, I don't know if you caught it in the end when she took the oath. She said, uh, the Lord do so to me. That's Yahweh. That's Jehovah. That, you understand? That's important. She didn't say, you know, Baal, may Baal, you know, or somebody like that. The Lord. <clears throat> and it, God really uh, finds that precious. Because Ruth swore to her own hurt. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Commit yourself to something that you know is going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, later on, after you've committed yourself and you get into it, you go, boy, oh boy, I wish I could get out of this. huh? You know, God says in Psalms, he, he honors those who fear the Lord, who swear to their own hurt and do not change. God, God finds that particularly important in the life particularly of believers the reason is is because it's like his son jesus swore to his hurt you see in way before he came all of the promises in here that he would come and die for us and during all that time he didn't change he came when it was time and he died for our sins praise the lord he didn't change and so when the, when the Lord sees someone like this, it reminds him of his son, you see. Someone who swears to their own hurt and then don't change. They don't back out. And that's Ruth. You know, this, these had to be comforting words to Naomi. You know, put yourself in Naomi's uh, shoes for a minute. She's, she's pretty depressed. We're going to see as she talks later. And you can't blame her. She is really discouraged. What, what encouraging words, huh? From Ruth. Don't you think this lifted up her spirits a little bit? You know, to have someone still left who says, no, no, wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. In fact, where you're buried, that's where I'm going to be buried. Wouldn't that encourage you? Man, you know, I'm going to be with you till death. Wow. <clears throat> now, it doesn't show in Naomi. <laughs> you're not going to see it because she's just so sad. But I, I have to think that that really spoke to her heart to see Ruth do this. Uh, something else about Ruth here. It's a very subtle thing, and yet it's something that we all need to learn. And that is that real compassion uh, sees through the arguments of someone who is grieving. You know what I mean? Naomi apparently doesn't want anybody to go with her. You think that's true? No, it's not true. She, she's a lonely woman. She's, she's heartbroken. And she desperately wants a friend. And Ruth knows that. And so what I like about this is Ruth won that argument. Isn't that good? She knew Naomi was hurting and that she needed someone close to her to care for her, particularly as she gets older. And so uh, that's a real aspect of discernment for us. You know, I don't mean to generally push until you get your way. But in situations like this, when people grieve, sometimes they put on the front of just leave me alone. I want to go crawl into a corner and die. Well, 
they really sometimes are crying out for comfort in that case. And Naomi certainly was. And so Ruth saw that. <clears throat> okay, well, we're going to focus on Ruth. And so just think about it now. It appears that at this point, Ruth has painted herself into a corner as far as her future goes, doesn't it? I mean, it's a dead-end life. She's going to be uh, cooped up with this aging woman who's going to die, and she's going to die an old maid, you know, a poor old maid in a strange land. It sure looks that way. But it's not going to end that way. Because she's trusting in the Lord, you see, and the Lord's going to take care of her. <clears throat> okay. Uh, verse 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. Remember, that's uh, Naomi's hometown. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant or, or graceful, right? No, add something like that. It's a positive word. Uh, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which literally means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Okay, before we get into the barley harvest, we get a little close up of Naomi here. And you can see she's, she's bitter against God, isn't she? I, I think you caught that. Um, in fact, she blames God for everything that happened. Uh, what's interesting to me is not only is she, uh, she, she bitter about all the past events, but uh, she uses one of the names of God in an ironical way. The name she uses there twice is Almighty, Shaddai. El Shaddai, we're familiar with that. It's one of the uh, names of God in the Old Testament. Literally, the Almighty. Now, when God reveals himself as El Shaddai to Abraham, it's meant as a good thing. I am Almighty God. It's something to encourage us that our God is so great, there's nothing he can't do. Isn't that great? Praise God. El Shaddai. Well, Naomi's using that name here Certainly not in a positive way. In fact, she's saying the Almighty was against me. The great God who's all-powerful used all of his strength against little old me. That's what she's saying. Okay? <clears throat> you know, why would somebody so great pick on a little person like me? You know? And I'm not, I'm not criticizing her. We can understand where she's coming from. She's just so sad and bitter. And her faith is just about shot, you know. She doesn't realize that the Lord is indeed El Shaddai in a good way. But she's going to learn that lesson before the book is over. Uh, it's interesting, you know, when, when she uses that word uh, Shaddai in, in, to describe her affliction, it reminds us of uh, Martha. Remember Martha serving in, in the kitchen, getting the dinner ready while Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening to him? And Martha said that classic question, Lord, don't you care? Can you imagine asking Jesus that question? Don't you care? Wow. <clears throat> okay, well, it's barley harvest time, chapter 2. 
There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. What a coincidence, huh? Now, she did not arrange this, and I'm going to tell you why. We know that for a fact. This is pure, quote, coincidence. So don't be thinking, oh, okay, she's already starting to pull strings. No, she's not. Uh, now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to a servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. <clears throat> as, as far as we can tell, an ephah is about 25 pounds. That's not bad, huh? Picking up barley a grain at a time. <clears throat> of course, we saw in some cases it wasn't a grain at a time. It was a head at a time. Okay, we're introduced uh, to Boaz in the very first verse of this chapter as a near kinsman. And um, according to the law that I read earlier, it had been expanded by the Israelites to include not just the brother of the deceased husband, but any near kinsman was required to come and marry a widow if there were no sons. And so he's a candidate for that office. So you may be sitting here wondering, well, why didn't he come in and do his duty? The reason is, is because he's not first in line. We're going to find that out. 
So Boaz is not irresponsible. He would be out of place to come in and say, hey, one of the two of us get married. And we find that uh, uh, Naomi, uh, Ruth has come here to glean. It's, it's a familiar word to many. It's real simple. Um, even today, when they, when they harvest a grain of any kind and they go through you know, those big reapers and stuff, uh, they get most of it. But there are grains, obviously, that are going to fall on the ground that are left behind. Well, today, you know, that's left for the birds or whatever. You can see big flocks, in fact, following these reapers out in the field. But in these days, it was another law of God, which I won't read. But God commanded them, when you reap your field, uh, deliberately just leave that, the extra grains there for the poor. So they can come in after the reapers have done their job and pick up the grains and get enough to make a little bread with. A little provision for the poor. And so that tells us how poor, and we knew it already, Ruth and Naomi really are. They can't go to the store and buy bags of, of, uh, of grain or, or flour. Uh, she has to go and pick up the grains one by one in the field after the reaping. Okay, um, I love this. Uh, it says, um, verse 3, Then she left and went and gleaned in the field. And she, it says in my translation, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And I know when I read that, you're all thinking, yeah, right. Sure, just coincidence. It, apparently in the, in the uh, original, it's very strong. It it's, it's literally says, she chanced to chance upon that field. God is stressing to us, she's not arranging things here, and that's very important. You remember I talked about earlier about, I believe, possibly the men in the family trying to escape the discipline of God? We do that. We take things into our own hands too often, don't we? I do. And so it's very important that uh, neither Ruth nor Boaz are going to fall for that temptation of starting to manipulate things to their own ends and taking control. And so God is telling us very strongly here, no, Ruth didn't arrange this. She didn't know where she was going. She just went to a field. God was the one who's doing this. It's very important. It's his doing. Uh by the way, uh, I should have been pointing it out. I wanted to, which since these are character studies, I should be pointing out character traits. Uh, the first one I should have pointed out earlier in her relationship with Naomi and the Lord is her faithfulness. Faithfulness. Okay? Character trait number one. Boy, is she ever faithful. Until it hurts. That's how faithful she is. Here, uh, among other things, we're not going to point out all of them. She's a, she's a model woman. Uh, but the second thing I notice here is her diligence. I don't know if you caught it. Did you see when she started gleaning? What does it say? The, the, uh, the fellow's report. Uh, it says, um, she came and has continued from morning, verse 7. Okay? I wouldn't doubt the crack of dawn. She's rested a little in the house. And by the way, that doesn't mean she went in the living room and sat down on the sofa. Okay, this is not uh, Boaz's house. He lives in Bethlehem. There's just a little shack there, okay, for the, for the people to sit and maybe get a drink of water and rest for a little while from the labors and the heat of the day, and they'll go back to work. So beyond that rest, it, it, she, can, she goes back to glean after they eat, and in verse 17, it says, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Wow. So she started in the morning. She didn't, didn't get done and probably until it was turning dark. Diligent. 
woman. Kind of, kind of lady you'd like to have for a wife, huh? Faithful, diligent. <clears throat> okay, uh, I, I love Boaz. He, what, what a great guy for a husband, huh? <laughs> yeah? L- look at all of these wonderful things he does. And of course, it's a picture of the grace of God. But um, I just made a list of all of the things he did for her. It, it, there are so many things. In verse 8, for example. He tells her, uh, don't glean in another field. In other words, stay here at my place. I mean, this is a choice place to be gleaning. They might have lined up in the morning to get into Boaz's field. And Boaz is telling her, you've got a guaranteed spot here. That's great. Uh, But then he says, verse 8, stay close by my young women. Now, these these are not gleaners. These are not poor people. These are people working for Boaz. You'd have the young men typically up front cutting with a sickle getting getting the uh barley cut and then the young women will come behind and, and bundle it up into sheaves okay so they're workers what boaz is telling her is you go right in there among the workers that's that's not usual gleaners kept at a distance okay they would love to get right up there you know where, where they're cutting the sheaves but uh, you don't do that when you're a gleaner you stay back you know well away from the workers and you just pick up the grains way back there. He's telling you, you go right up there. Don't be afraid. Go right up with the young women. Isn't that good? He's taking care of her. Best position among the gleaners. Uh, verse 9, he says, he's commanded uh, the young men not to touch her. He doesn't mean uh, in, a, in an unseemly, affectionate way. He means don't interfere with what she's doing. You know, if a gleaner typically got up in there, the young men would say, hey, get back over there where you belong. And he's saying, you let her go up there and don't don't mess with her. Don't don't stop her. Uh, and then verse ten, he tells her to go. Um, uh, no, no. Verse uh, nine, go drink with the young men when when they're thirsty. That's reserved for the workers, the guys that are Boaz's men. Gleaners don't go up there again. Gleaners are kind of outsiders. You know, you can come and pick up grain as long as you don't get in the way. And he's telling her, go ahead, when you're thirsty, you go right up there and drink with the young guys. Now, it's interesting to me. We're going to see later. This is important to Boaz. She's younger and he's older. We're going to find that out. I think he he knows the whole story. We see that about Naomi and Ruth. I think he may be trying to open up a possibility for her to meet someone there. It may well be when he says, go up and drink with the young men. But he's he's thinking of her. Verse uh, 14, uh, when they sit down to eat. Now, I know none of you were uh, particularly impressed, probably, when he said, go ahead and stick your bread in the vinegar. But that was quite a thing in this culture. I mean, he's treating her like a favored guest. (laughs) Okay? Like he would treat some other wealthy man from Bethlehem. This is just a poor gleaner. And she's sitting at table with him. And he's actually serving her. That is really great. So he's really giving her a high position here. He doesn't quit there. Verse 14. um, No, pardon me. Verse 15. uh, He tells, after she goes back to glean, he takes uh, the young men aside and he says, I want you to even let her glean among the sheaves. Whoa. That's where the good stuff is. Okay. Uh, and again, he says, let her do that and do not rebuke her. Don't say a word to her. Isn't this great? 
Man, he's taking good care of her. Um, oh, yeah, by the way, he passed her parched grain. And again, you're going, oh, okay. I don't know if I particularly care for the stuff. But it was a treat in those days. Uh, they, when they had the grains, sometimes there were kernels that were a little on the green side. So what they would do, they would roast them and eat them. And they were quite a delicious snack, apparently. And so he was giving her a treat. But she ate so much of the snack that she got full, if you noticed, until she was satisfied. <clears throat> he didn't quit there. Verse 16, he tells the young man, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Now, when it's in the bundles, you've got a whole head of grain here, all right? So he's telling him, you deliberately leave a whole bunch for her to get. And then as we saw, finally, um, 20, uh, an ephah, which we believe is probably about 25 pounds. That, that's a lot of grain to just get by uh, gleaning. And of course, now we've said when we're doing the character studies, we could go hog wild in all the pictures and types. Uh, they're all over the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus. But we wanted to focus particularly on the character. But we can't leave this section without saying that in seeing Boaz's treatment of Ruth, we're reminded of the Lord's grace toward us. Isn't that, isn't that true? You know, as I read that list, it's like it can't get any better. And then it does. And that's the way it is with the Lord. You know, as we begin to discover the benefits he's lavished on us, we think, oh, he couldn't do more than that. And then you read on and you find out that he's done even more than that. And the, the word strain in the New Testament, it says, as the ages roll on, he's going to show us his kindnesses toward us in Christ Jesus. That's plural. Kindness says. <clears throat> OK, uh, verse uh, 10 and verse 13, her responses to Boaz show another uh, quality of hers, and that's her modesty. Did you catch that? She's really a modest young woman. And uh, not surprisingly, uh, I love this verse 11. He says to, me, uh, to her, it has been fully reported to me all these things you've done. Isn't that great? She's probably thinking, you know, nobody knows who I am around here. But it's gotten out. And that's the way it is, you know. God will find a way uh, and have it get back to you just when you need that kind of an encouragement. I've had that happen, and I'm sure maybe you've experienced that too, you know. Maybe you're feeling a little discouraged. And what, God will arrange it so some little bit of encouragement just makes it back to you out of the blue that you never expected to hear. I see a lot of heads nodding. He's like that. And that really touched my heart to hear her say it uh, the way she did look at verse 13 she says let me find favor in your sight my lord for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant isn't that good she needed that you know <clears throat> okay verse uh, 18 then she took it up that is the barley and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned so she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she'd been satisfied. This is the parched grain now besides the barley, remember? The little treat. She brought some of that for Naomi as well. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Little suspecting who this guy is. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord <clears throat> who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, 
He also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Okay, this is a wonderful scene. It rivals any story you've ever read, any great uh, Hollywood romance. Uh, I, I wish we had cameras and actors here to bring this to life, this wonderful little scene here, as well as the scene with boys. Really, the whole story begs to be uh, dramatized. Because I think we read the words, and we read them kind of flatly. We really don't understand a lot of the emotion that's, that's behind a lot of this stuff. But uh, it would be something like this. She comes in with this <laughs> 25 pounds of barley. Now, Naomi knows that is not a typical day's gleaning. And so when she's speaking here, uh, and she says, blessed be the one who took notice of you. She's saying, blessed be the one who took notice of you when she sees all of that barley. She's wondering, you know, uh, what happened? Why do you have so much of that stuff? And so uh, close up of Ruth, okay? And she very naively, she doesn't know who he is other than he uh, told her that he'd heard of her before. Um she says, oh, his name is Boaz. And you can just see it. She says it kind of innocently, you know. And you can just see Naomi go, boing, like that. That would be the close-up of her face. Okay? Boaz. And she explains to her who she is. Now you have a close-up of Ruth's face. Oh, really? You know? Be a wonder- It's a wonderful interchange here. Um... <clears throat> Okay, uh, it's interesting that uh, I believe clearly Boaz has some affection for her. I, I, you know, I don't know if he's in love with her, but uh, he certainly sees her as a godly woman and a, and a prime prospect for a wife, maybe not necessarily for himself. And, uh, and yet, notice uh, his careful uh, restraint in how he deals with her and the respectful way he treats her. What's interesting to me is that through this whole thing, in fact, through the whole book, we never find out what they look like. Now, if this were Hollywood or, uh, you know, true romance or something like that, you know, it would begin with a long description, you know, Ruth was the most beautiful Moabitess that had ever been born, you know, long black hair and dark eyes, you know, and so on and so forth, right? You know, and Boaz was a hunk, you know. <laughs> What's interesting, we, we have no clues. That's important. We have a lot of information about their characters. And not surprisingly, it's because God wrote it, you see. God looks on the heart, not the outward appearance. And that's what's important in this relationship. <clears throat> By the way, uh, verse 22, <clears throat> it is good, my daughter, you, you, that you go out with these young women and the people do not meet you in any other field. What does she say? What uh, Naomi is saying there? Don't leave that field. That's what she's saying. Okay. Okay. Uh, chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "My daughter, 
Shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. That's the next step after reaping it. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. And you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself. And there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for uh, for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley. Now, the word ephahs is italicized there. It's not in the original. I'm interrupting that because he didn't dump 150 pounds in her shawl. Okay, it's not clear what the measure is, but obviously he gave her a lot. Six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Okay. Uh, Again, these are human people. And you can imagine Ruth's thoughts when Naomi tells her, okay, next step, I want you to go to the threshing floor and, you know, do all this stuff with, with the, uh, the garment and uncovering his feet and so on. By the way, I know it sounds strange to us. You usually don't do this kind of thing. But in this culture, apparently it was the thing to do to make a near kinsman aware of his duty. That's the point. And so Ruth was telling her the thing she needed to do to do that. So there's no, you know, it's all very respectable. In fact, if you notice in verse 11, uh, Boaz makes it very plain. You are, a vir- you are a virtuous woman, stressing that fact. By the way, quality number four, she's virtuous, okay? Um, verse 10 is very touching. He said, you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after young men, 
where they're poor or rich. He's an older man. And he's saying, you're being kind to me. That's what he's saying. You're, and your kindness that you're showing right now to me is even greater than the kindness uh, that you showed to Naomi earlier. He's touched. Because she's a young woman and she could go after whoever she wanted. In fact, literally saying that you didn't chase after young men. You know? <clears throat> uh, now... Let's pause because let's be honest. At this point, where they both basically expressed their interest in each other, there's a real temptation to take control and say, oh, clearly God has meant us for each other. Let's go get married. Right? Sure, there is. There's a temptation to take over for God at this point. I've been there, we've all been there. <clears throat> kind of like uh, the pilot to the co-pilot, you know. Well, you've done a good job up until now. Now give me the wheel and I'll take it in from here, you know. You ever done that? I have. God has brought them together uh, legally, you know. They're, they're available and so on. He's, he's certainly close to the right guy. And there's a real danger here because they don't do that. They don't. They leave it in God's hand all the way until it's clear that he's arranged the whole thing until it would be a sin to say no <clears throat> we can miss god's will by number one choosing only what we want from beginning to end we're familiar with that but we can also miss his will by choosing the same end we think he's going to provide but getting there our way and we miss out when we do that <clears throat> i don't know how you felt but but when you read this uh statement his verse 12 he says now it is true that i am a close relative and and ruth is going wow this is great and then he says but there's a guy that's closer than i am how do you think she felt now she's a godly woman and let me say first of all that the thing that's overriding everything in her life is to trust the lord and to follow the lord but she's human and I have a feeling that her heart maybe just dipped a little bit there, you know? I'm not number one. I'm number two, you know? And there would have been a temptation to say, oh, forget that guy. I've never even met him. You know, I know you. I love you. It's, it's a match made in heaven. <clears throat> Listen to Boaz's honorable words. What a, he, she's a godly woman. He's a godly man. He says, <clears throat> if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. Does that sound good to you? <laughs> well, you think Ruth thought it was sounding good? Good, let him do it. Yeah, because that's the way the Lord would have it, you see. It's the law of God, and that's right. And here, Boaz and Ruth, by her consent, are they literally taking this potential relationship and they're putting it back up in the air again you know okay lord here it is i don't know what's going to happen but it's in your hands it's out of ours this is god's way it's it's hard sometimes but it's his way um it's interesting he says lie down till morning i wonder if she slept you know <clears throat> Okay, I like uh, Naomi's response, by the way. Apparently, I think it says in mine, verse 16, is that you, my daughter? And you kind of get the picture. She must be in bed, kind of asleep, you know, kind of waking up. 
she hears the door open is that you and that's really not it literally uh and she's not even saying how are you she's literally saying who are you and apparently what what the implication is in the original language she's saying tell me everything that happened that's what she's saying i'm all ears okay but probably the most important words in this whole chapter if not the whole book naomi really uh says a jewel here verse 18 sit still my daughter two words sit still isn't that good sit still and i've already talked about the temptation that had to have been for both of them but she says don't don't take control here i know there's a real temptation you know to pull strings and so on it's so hard sometimes to do that isn't it to wait and do nothing particularly when there are issues regarding our life you know and the more important they are the harder it is to sit still we often find it very difficult to leave a situation in the hands of another's even god's the application for us is given in psalm 27 wait on the lord be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart it's interesting he says that he's talking about during that waiting period (laughs) don't worry he'll he'll make sure you can make it if you if you trust him and then he says again wait i say on the lord there's a natural tendency not to trust other people with things of great value here we're talking about our lives certainly in the case of uh, ruth you know when jesus said i have come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly was he misleading us or maybe he's incapable of of delivering on that promise or maybe uh his idea of the abundant life and mine are two different things you know and i'd rather have mine you know you can't trust jesus listen to what god says in jeremiah i know the thoughts that i think toward you says the lord thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope it's sad that god has to talk that way listen to what he's he's answering someone who is querying him and wondering if he really has my best interest at heart that's who he's talking to he has to address that kind of a problem he says i know the thoughts that i think toward you what he's saying is look you don't know what my plans are i do and i've examined them and i found out that they're good in spite of what you think that's what he's saying he says they're thoughts of peace and not of evil it's sad we have to be told that praise the lord nothing can alter or destroy his plans for heaven for us however there is something that can interfere with his plans for us in this life okay there they are right there that's how i can interfere with god's plan for my life it's kind of scary you know again not his eternal plans praise god you're not going to mess with those but yes do you think it's possible for a christian to miss god's best Uh uh-huh happens all the time yes and it's not his fault when it happens see the thing is we have access to the same machinery that he does what i mean is people events 
We have influence. God has posted signs for us in certain places. It says, uh, no unauthorized personnel allowed beyond this point. And sometimes we open that door and we go in there and we start tinkering around with the machinery. We start pulling strings. When I say we, I'm including myself. Okay? And we can and we do attempt to alter the outcome to please ourselves. You know what the word for that kind of tampering is, by the way? It's called sabotage. I know I shouldn't buy it, but I want it so bad, I'll charge it, and then I'll worry about paying for it later. I know we were counseled to wait, but we love each other, so it must be the will of God. I realize what I'm doing is displeasing to God, but if I keep it a secret, no one will get hurt. Praying clearly hasn't worked, but I know someone who can pull some strings. You say, oh, but wait a minute, Romans 8, all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, right? Does, is, that, is God saying there that bad things never happen to Christians? Yes, everything he does in our lives is perfect, but we can and do miss, miss God's best. We can and do uh, have serious problems in our lives because of that. Much of the New Testament is written to believers to keep them from doing that. We wouldn't need the Bible if uh, everything was automatic and we were robots. So instead of waiting on the Lord as we were enjoined to do there, like the little boy, you know, whose mother said, go sit in the corner and don't get up until I tell you. And he sits there and says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. We're waiting on the outside. But on the inside, it's a different story. And God sees that. People see we're waiting, but God sees that we're not. And inside, we're impatient. You know, it's like uh, we've set a deadline. Okay, Lord, I'm starting the clock right now. And if you haven't done something in a week, I'm taking over. Now, people don't see that. You know, I'm just waiting on the Lord. You know, keep praying for me. Uh, this this idea of uh, doing that, by the way, you're not fooling anybody, particularly not God. It's a big mistake. You know why? If I start a clock like that, God doesn't start his clock. His clock has not started. And he's not going to start it until I give up and say, Lord, I entirely trust you now. It's entirely in your hands. I let go. Then he starts the clock and not until then. And we think as the weeks and the months and the years go by, boy, he sure has taken a long time. Yeah, he's waiting on me. And so we take the controls like the pilot, you know, okay, I'll take over now. And we lead the events to our chosen conclusion, or at least we try to. And then we give glory to God at the end when we get there until time shows that that was a building that was built by me and not by God. Let me say it. The only good, satisfying, right, and perfect way is to arrive at God's chosen destination and to get there His way. Both of them. For some people, their worst fear is to leave events up to God without their interference. And their greatest security, or at least so they think, is to be in complete control of everything. 
And this is nothing more than self-deception. As James says about the double-minded man, let not that man think he will receive anything from the Lord. And they end up with a life where the puzzle pieces just never seem to fit. Here, with Ruth, I'll tell you, what a wonderful woman. She's the opposite of that. To her, ever since the first chapter, we see that her fear is only to be out of the will of God. And her chief security lies in complete trust in his care for her. I love Boaz's uh, comment to her. Did you catch that? He said, may the Lord take care of you under whose wings you have sought refuge. Isn't that good? And for her, all things fall into place. And she's richly blessed by the Lord. Quality number five, by the way, her complete trust in the Lord. Really, that's the theme of the book. Okay, uh, we're we're running late, so I'm not going to read the last chapter. I'll let you read it. They get married and live happily ever after, okay? But but I'll tell you, uh, watch Boaz when you read it. Because this is a man, ladies, I'll tell you, this is a guy you'd like to uh, be submissive to. He, I'll tell you, he takes control the right way. He honors God through the whole thing. He goes and gets 10 elders, has them sit in the gate where these kind of things have to take place. He gets the nearest relative and he doesn't let him wiggle away until he's committed himself to either doing his duty or not. And finally, the guy says, okay, I can't do it. And Boaz immediately in the presence of all the witnesses, okay, I will. I'll marry the young woman. Isn't that good? He's a great example. And... Uh, <clears throat> But the, the, the final thing that God puts in here that is really meant for us is the genealogy in the last uh, five verses where uh, God begins way back with Perez and it goes all the way down and then it says, Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz begot Obed. Obed is Ruth and Boaz's son. They had a son. Isn't that great? Naomi, by the way, it says, took the, the boy to her bosom. You think Naomi died happy? Yeah. You know, the last chapter hadn't been written until now. She's a happy woman. Ruth is a happy woman. And then it goes on. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Ruth is the great-grandmother of David the king. Isn't that great? What a great God we have. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. How could we ever not trust you for our future? Lord, we just pray that we might learn daily uh, more by experience, not just by theory. Just what a great and wonderful God you are by trusting you more and more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.